Welcome back to another episode of Somewhere Between, a podcast made by Asian adoptees for Asian adoptees. Hi guys, welcome back to another interview episode of Somewhere Between. I'm Amy, and today we're joined by a special guest, Spencer. Hi Spencer, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're happy to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Spencer. I was born in 1999 and I was, so it's a little bit complicated, but the long story short is essentially I was adopted from Hunan province when I was a little over a year old, um, but I was born and originally found in Guangdong province. Um, And as I said, I was adopted a little bit after one years old. I think my parents arrived like the week after my birthday. um, And it was actually one of my fathers came uh, with my aunt, who's my godmother on that side, uh, to pick me up from China. And the other one was staying to watch my older brother, who'd been adopted the year prior. Um, and I currently live in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, but I go to school in New York at Vassar College. Um, and currently, I'm a full-time student, but I will be graduating this spring, which is very terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then after, I do have to take more classes, because I'm hoping to apply to med school, and I have to finish out some of the prerequisites. Nice. That's, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I'm very excited for that. Very topical time to go into med school, I feel like. (laughs) Oh yeah, I think definitely having time in quarantine to reflect more on like what I'm interested in and talking with definitely people in my family who are health professionals and Vassar alumni really helped me make that decision. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on your almost graduation. It's exciting. Thank you. Of course. So uh, what was growing up like for you in general? Yeah, I mean, growing up was interesting because my parents, they told me this later, but they actually specifically moved to Northampton because it was known for being a very queer-friendly city. The only interesting thing about that choice was that it was very queer-friendly. It is still very queer-friendly, but most people have lesbian moms. So we weren't bullied for having two dads it was just like still a different thing from a lot of people I thought that was like a funny situation and that they were like oh we're trying to make it not weird for you to have gay parents and it wasn't weird it was just like oh you have two dads and everyone else has two moms yeah so that was interesting and I think growing up and being part of the LGBTQ plus community um, it was definitely easier to feel more comfortable in that because you know I had two dads who were gay so like what were they going to say no you can't be gay Mm -hmm, right (laughs) and also like my community was pretty queer friendly so that made it a lot easier that's really good that I think that's one of the most important things that you can have if you're trying to find your identity in that especially in that kind of sense so for the, the folks at home how do you identify if you feel comfortable sharing that yeah I mean I identify as pansexual um I've also like used bisexual I sort of I know that there is a difference and I know some people are like care a lot about that specific difference personally like I think they both hit towards what I'm trying to get at and that like I really just like people um Mm -hmm. but I do understand there's a difference so I sort of use them interchangeably depending on who I'm with and what situation I'm with but I think I originally identified more with pansexual um I also identify as trans non-binary um and when I was oh man when I was much younger um I sort of had an inkling that like I wasn't cis, but I didn't have uh, any vocabulary for it. And I didn't really know what that meant for, you know, living my life. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, so it's interesting because a lot of my friends that I've talked to who've had to come out in the more, I think, 
not necessarily traditional, but the larger experience of a lot of people. Like I didn't have that with sexuality because again, my parents were queer, but mm-hmm. I definitely had that with gender because I think like one of my fathers um, grew up in an immigrant household. He's a first generation college student and Italians have uh, very standard ideas of what gender norms are. I feel you on that one. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Yeah. (laughs) And also like my grandparents, like my parents are definitely on the older side. They grew up, I think they do technically qualify as boomers. Um, (laughs) So they grew up, especially when that was like very much more of a thing um, that was prevalent in like how people conducted themselves. And so I think with my father, it was definitely a lot for him to wrap his head around. Um, And also he is not very medically versed. He's he faints at the sight of blood. Um, oh. So that was, I think, the other part that was hard for him um, mm-hmm. in terms of any medical things I did. My other father's a doctor, so he was like, I got this. I, <laughs> like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Um, right. And they, you know, they were both very supportive in their own ways. And But it still was the moment of, like, coming out. And that was way more terrifying than I actually had expected it to be. But mm-hmm. it ended up being fine. So that was good. That's good, though. That's... I... I actually recently came out to my parents within this last um, quarantine period. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. But, you know, even though I didn't anticipate, you know, I had no reason to expect any kind of negative reaction. So people kept saying, why are you so nervous? Like, why don't you just do it? And I couldn't quite verbalize, even though you think that nothing, even if you're convinced that nothing will go wrong, it's still really terrifying in a really strange way. Um, No matter what, I think no matter what, your however your parents are or however the relationship is it's it's, I think it's always going to be a little terrifying no matter who you're coming out to or the context of it I should say I think part of it is also you it is a moment of vulnerability and that you're sharing a part of yourself with someone that they may not um, have automatically assumed or anticipated and so even if you know in your heart that you won't get rejected that like people will still love you regardless like there is still that fear of but what if and I think that that Mm -hmm. fear I mean fear in general is such a powerful emotion but especially that what Mm -hmm. if can really make it hard to say certain things um Mm -hmm. and I think that you know it's especially with mainstream LGBTQ media not that there's much of it and even just with people sharing personal accounts like so many accounts in the LGBTQ plus community is that their parents or other people or friends, loved ones don't accept them for who they are. And so that I think that especially for LGBTQ kids is such an inherent thing as in part of our experiences, or at least what we see from media, um, Mm -hmm. and from other people's stories. And so even if you know that like your parents aren't going to reject you, that's still always a possibility. And I think especially as adoptees, it, it, it hits much closer to home in a lot of ways, because you know, as as adoptees, I think I don't know if you experienced this, but I definitely got comments of like, "Oh, your your you know your biological parents didn't want you, they didn't love you, and yeah. stuff like that." And so that Absolutely. definitely makes that sort of insecurity a lot stronger. Right. I feel even though you know the abandonment issues may be like uh, I don't know like the primal wound kind of thing or the the built in trauma of adoption, even before it was brought into like the education of that kind of thing, just the cognitive idea that everyone says, oh, your parents didn't want you. So now you have these parents. That is like, who says that to children? But yet that's something that every, I think every adoptee can resonate with that people would say to them at a surprisingly young age. (laughs) When I think about it, I just 
remember that like you know kids are great and they can be very cute um personally i prefer children from afar um <laughs> but at the same time like kids can be really mean like when you're young yeah. when you're that young a lot of times you don't really have a strong filter and you sort right. of just everything up in your brain just goes straight out your mouth and exactly. a lot of times that isn't a well thought out thought and so you will say things that is you know not necessarily the kindest thing to say and so mm -hmm. I think about things I heard as a child and at the time obviously I was like how could anyone say this like what the heck mm -hmm. but then when I think about it as an older person who like has done some research on children as a psychology major I'm like well mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense to be honest like it's not okay yeah. but it does make sense yeah it's so crazy like the things that we filter in and out as kids and adults it's <laughs> like you said there is like mostly the things we filter. don't filter out as kids yeah exactly exactly it's just <laughs> every little thing um right from the brain like you said right from the brain right out the mouth into somebody's face <laughs> <laughs> yeah unfortunately um can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like growing up for you yeah um so I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, for those of you who don't know, Massachusetts is a very white state. Um, and so for me, I think growing up, something that was definitely difficult was being often being the only person of color in a room mm -hmm. um, or one of two, the other person being my brother. Um, mm -hmm. And so I went to, my family also wanted to have a more, um, I think a little more of a nuanced education. So they enrolled us at a school that, I mean, my brother and I joke was in hippie school and like that's only half a joke because it definitely was. Um, <laughs> but it was definitely more focused on uh, getting kids to like move and interact with the world as opposed to just sitting at a desk and like trying to memorize stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that was, I think I enjoyed that form of education a lot more. Um, but the difficulty is most of the kids who went there were white um, and I was, one of I think maybe four Asian people by the time I left that school because there was one adoptee from South Korea and I think he entered in second or third grade and immediately everyone asked if we were related um, oh no <laughs> yeah and I was like first of all y'all know who my brother is because he's also been here as long as I have been here um, and second of all I have never seen this man in my entire life um, <laughs> So that was an interesting experience, but it was funny because we actually ended up bonding over the fact that we were, you know, very one of very few POCs in the school and right. everyone had thought we were related, even though we were like, you've literally never seen us together before. <laughs> that definitely makes sense. Um, so I that feel was like, interesting. yeah, definitely. That is, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where you, you're like, no, we don't know each other, but you gravitate towards each other naturally so that everyone associates you anyways. And it's, yeah <laughs> exactly and then you're like well I guess I unintentionally accidentally kind of proved your point but here we are and you know at least something good came out of it um, right I actually I have a new friend so now like, so jokes on you yeah so it worked out kind of um and I will say like it was interesting because I went from that school where you know by the time I, I think I left so I left in fifth grade right before middle school and mm. there was still very few two POCs. I don't know about now because I've been out for a while. Um, but I think like I ended up being close with the, the kids in the school who were POC and around my age because mm -hmm. there were so few of us. And that was something we definitely 
bonded over because we would get weird comments. And like, I mean, I will say most of the time people didn't mean anything bad by it, but right. people inevitably say things that are hurtful and will stay with you even after you grow up. Right. Um, but I think I was lucky in that they opened a Chinese language immersion program when I was Ooh. around the age of starting middle school. Um, and they were only accepting people at kindergarten and sixth grade. And then later on, once my class hit that grade ninth grade. Um, oh. And so I did middle school and high school at this school. And it mm. was very small. Every time I say that in college, people are like, every time anyone starts with, oh, my class was really small. I'm like, I guarantee it was still larger than mine. Mm. Um, I graduated high school with 11 people. Oh my gosh, that is, yeah, that's small. <laughs> The closest I've gotten to be like when people say small, the closest I've gotten to is 13 people. So that was pretty impressive. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Most people are like, you know, I had like a hundred, a couple hundred people in my class. And I'm like, I had very, very much less than that. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to tell you, but <laughs> I think that definitely helped a lot. Cause it was like, it was a chance for me to learn Mandarin in a structured format. So it was, you know, there's more motivation because a, you're getting graded and B, everyone else around you is also learning it. So right. it's not as, it's not as much as having to do self-driven learning. And mm -hmm. also, you know, you can practice with people around you, at least yeah. in class, it was a little awkward to like do it outside of class, because we were missing a lot of vocab, or like, we can't really correct each other. Right. But it also gave me a chance to connect with the culture. And I think that was a really cool experience for me, because growing up, my parents definitely they, I will give them a lot of credit. They tried very hard to get my brother and I to learn Mandarin and to be involved in cultural aspects and cultural mm -hmm. holidays. So we did celebrate some of those because um, Smith College is nearby. So there's a lot of uh, international students, especially Chinese students at Smith. Mm -hmm. And so when I was little, like, you know, we hired a babysitter and usually they were a Smith College student. And so they would try and help tutor us or just like do like fun cultural events with us. That's um, awesome. And Really cool. Yeah, so like my parents tried really hard and I give them a lot of credit. I think the problem was when you're a kid growing up in a very white community where you already stand out because you don't look like everyone, you definitely mm -hmm. are less inclined to continue to do other things that make you even more unlike other people around you. Right. It's it's you're even you're you're standing out even more and differentiating yourself even more, even though exactly. you know, you want to celebrate that. It, it doesn't feel like you're celebrating, it feels like you're just like, Hello here, I'm different. Exactly. And I think that for me, I'd always wanted to connect more with my cultural heritage, but I think it made it very hard when like I would learn something and then go to school and then, you know, get mocked for something related to being Asian. And then I was mm -hmm. like, well, now I don't really want to do this. Um, right. So definitely switching to the school I did for middle and high school was really, really helpful for me in just coming to terms with my own identity and figuring mm -hmm. out sort of where I, where I identified and where I connected with um, my cultural heritage. Um, and also, especially with transitioning, because one of my friends, her parents, one of them is a professor of Asian American studies, and the other one's a professor in gender and women's studies. That's awesome. So that was really cool and really helpful for just getting more of the, I guess, official is not necessarily the right term. I guess getting more of the academic side of things. And mm -hmm. it just gave me language for certain experiences or certain um, feelings that I had that were, you know, had official terms um, or had mm -hmm. theories behind them. And that was just really helpful to conceptualize my own identity and, you know, what was common in the communities versus like what was something that was more specific to my very intersectional identity. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds like a really 
really unique time to have different vantage points coming in in your education too, which I, a lot of people don't get. At least I, I know I didn't get in a public school. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also the nice thing was that starting in middle school to learn Mandarin meant that, I mean, your brain, it's studies have shown like your brain is definitely better set up the younger you are when you start learning a language. So I think yeah. for me, learning Mandarin starting in middle school meant that I didn't have as much of the struggle that um, friends at my college, even who started Mandarin much later, mm -hmm. have had in just like absorbing any parts of the language. Yeah. And so I think that made it much more accessible for me uh, now mm -hmm. as, you know, I guess I'm an adult technically, <laughs> but as an adult for like relating to all of that and understanding cultural, you know, norms or values um, mm -hmm. and also just being able to speak Mandarin. I will say my Mandarin has gotten a lot worse because I don't use it regularly. <laughs> yeah. But theoretically, it comes back <laughs> if you start studying more. <laughs> That's what they say. So they say. That's my hope. So after, you know, growing up and, you know, you made a really big effort and your dad's too to kind of keep you involved in your culture. Did you did that continue on past high school like into college as well? Yeah, um, I think at Vassar it was really interesting because growing up, there weren't that many Asians in my area. And so in middle and high school, especially because I went to such a small school, I don't think our specific ethnicities were, they weren't super relevant in the sense of, we just sort of accepted like, you know, we're all Asian Americans and that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And like, we have certain different cultural backgrounds and it's really cool that we can like celebrate different cultures in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I wasn't always like, I'm Chinese, I'm Chinese. And like, that was you know, I am Chinese, but I think for me, I related more to the idea of being Asian American as mm -hmm. a whole, because there weren't that many Asians in my area, period. Right. Um, and I think in, in college, it was a very interesting shift, because I think people had a lot more pride about their specific ethnicity. And I think that's really cool. It was just like a very disorienting thing to suddenly have it be like, you know, state your ethnicity when I'm in a room of all Asians, because I was like, I'd never really thought of doing that um mm -hmm. i think in general because i was just like you know i'm an asian american right but i got involved with the asian students alliance my first year um cool. and it was definitely interesting to see how people who had grown up in more diverse areas or had had more experiences with asian american studies or asian studies at vassar how they mm -hmm. viewed being asian um and also right. i think it was a chance to branch beyond just vassar college because we did do some like we went to ikasu which i don't know exactly what it stands for but it's something along the lines of the east coast asian american students union i think and that's just basically a big conference on the east coast and they have all these panels talking about being asian and asian american and it was really cool because there was an adoptee panel or an adoptee oh. panel in the forum so i went to the forum and i met a yeah. bunch of people who were also adopted which was really cool i do think that my experience at least with a lot of adoptees I've met on the East Coast is mm. a bit different because I went to a cultural and language immersion program yeah. um, for middle and high school. So I have, I think my affinity towards my heritage culture and like Asian, Asian cultures in general is a little bit closer than a lot of other people have experienced mm. just because they haven't had that chance to be as immersed in learning. Um, and so I mm. think especially when you're older learning it, it there's definitely more of a disconnect. Mm. Um, so that was a little bit that was very interesting to navigate in a room full of other adoptees. And that's right. something I've also been navigating at Vassar College because a senior who graduated last year, she started a casual just like adoptee meetup with two other people. And I have 
sort of I help plan it now this year and I sort of helped out a little bit last year. Uh, it's just been really cool to have a community that's specifically adoptees and young. I mean, I feel like now as a senior, I feel so old saying it, but like all of the young kids are just, they're so cool and they're <laughs> just really wonderful, wonderful human beings. And I think like, especially with the Asian Students Alliance, um, my sophomore year, I served on the exec board. I was the administrative liaison. So I was in charge of organizing our Big Sub Little Sub program. And oh, that yeah. experience was fantastic because I got to meet all of them a little bit earlier because I read all their forms. So I was like, I right. have a general sense of this person, but like, obviously yeah. that's not a complete picture. And mm -hmm. then I was like, all right, I, I got to make these pairings. I know not a whole ton about everyone. Mm -hmm. And personally, like, because I was the person making the pairings, I like got to choose who I wanted. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really nice because I, my little sibs are great. I really love them. I think that being on the exec board was really helpful because I definitely had a couple of first years come up to me at certain points and just say like, oh, you know, I'm way more comfortable coming to this space because there is an adoptee on the exec board. Um, and mm -hmm. I feel like my voice is also represented as opposed to, I definitely felt underrepresented my first year because there was no adoptee on exec board. And mm -hmm. I think sort of a, a statement that often happens in a space with a lot of Asians is, oh, we all understand what this is like. Yeah. And that's not true because there are people who are second gen, third gen, fourth gen, um, Asian Americans, there are adoptees, there are people who have not experienced what the majority of people often in a room of Asian Americans have experienced. And so mm -hmm. I really like personally, I try to stay away from that statement because I think even within one identity, like even within the adoptee experience, that's such a radically different experience depending on the family you were adopted into, depending on the area you grew up in, depending on who was around yeah. you. Like, that just definitely is different. So I think those statements mm -hmm. can be somewhat harmful to trying to build a community because it's sort of the paradox of trying to unify and that like, if we try to unify, often we're going to exclude people that would still fall under the identity that we're trying to unify around. Right. But also if you're so diverse, sometimes it can be hard to find a common thread. And so I think mm -hmm. that like, that's sort of the thing I've navigated with the Asian community at Vassar. But also mm -hmm. I've gotten some really great friends out of trying to be in those spaces. So I'm very thankful for that. That's awesome. And I wish I went to fast. The way you talk about it, I'm like, that sounds like a great time. Like, I don't know. I, I just think it's, uh, it sounds like a really great experience for you. Even further developing your identity journey, you know, that never really ceases to, to stop. Right. That's definitely a continuous uh, aspect of life and I will say, like, you know, Vassar is obviously not perfect. It is still a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Mm -hmm. But I but I definitely think that I've had a great experience in terms of being Asian just because I've found really wonderful friends who mm -hmm. I can share, like, I can share stuff with that feels like we generally understand each other. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, my house this year, like, all of us living in the house are Asian American, and that's been a really wonderful experience because... There's just some things that you don't have to say. Like we were trying to make house rules and we were sitting there. We we're like, do we really like what what do we need to specify? Because for me, the big thing is like, please don't wear your shoes in the house. Like, yes. Thank you. It's, it's, it's gross. Do it's that. so gross. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I lived with a, a bunch of people, not to sidetrack, but, you know, I lived with a bunch of people. I think my Second year out of college, I live with four other girls, so five of us in one household. And my whole life, I've always taken my shoes off because just 
it's dirty outside. Why would you bring that into your home? Ugh, it's so gross to me. But <laughs> people would constantly wear their shoes. And like, even when I moved into a part with just one other white person, like I had to say that explicitly and everyone, like what her parents gave, they didn't do it. It was just, uh, it was constantly like, oh my God, to clean the floors now. It was just like this constant thing that got brought, being brought up. But every time I join a Zoom call with other adoptees or Asian people in general, like they're like, they left their shoes in the house? Are you kidding? <laughs> like, it's so inherent. So, yeah, no, what you just said about, you know, you having, like, rules just built in very strongly resonated with me. I live with a bunch of white people. I love them. If you're listening, I love all of you very much. Yeah, yeah. Take your shoes off, please. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> it just makes sense. But that was the thing, was, like, living with other Asian Americans, especially because, like, I've been friends with all of them since my first year. So, you know, we've mm -hmm. had a lot of time to get to know each other. Right. And I think that there was just things that made sense to us. And it's also really nice. Like the comparison of being on campus with being home is that, you know, I love my house. I love my family. I love the fact that like I grew up very immersed in Italian culture and like, you know, the Irish side mm. was floating around there somewhere. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. like, that's really wonderful to grow up with, to have these two European cultures in the household. But obviously mm. the, the fridge, like I feel like food is a huge example of culture and also a really great Absolutely. way to connect with culture. And like yeah. the fridge in my house here versus the fridge at my house at Vassar are very different fridges. Because, right. You know, one is a lot of like very European fizzle. Often there is a potato. There's a lot of potatoes in the fridge. There's often <laughs> pasta in the pantry. Like we, right. I think we just never run out of pasta. We have yeah. so much pasta in the pantry all the time. Anytime we're low, immediately someone goes to the store and buys a lot more pasta. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff like that. And like, you know, there are, my parents, like to try Asian cooking you know I think they they'll they're just like having fun with it they want to learn they yeah. want to learn about the culture it's probably mm -hmm. not authentic it's definitely not like super authentic food but they're trying their best and I appreciate it yeah so you know you'll Sweet. find Asian seasonings in our pantry too which is kind of nice but then I, I like that mm -hmm. like you know we always have Asian food in the fridge like most of mm -hmm. our pantry has like any sort of Asian ingredient. If I want to make mm -hmm. anything that's Asian like usually we're, our pantry has it or it's very easy for us to buy because we found like a little Asian mart nearby and the woman who runs it's it very awesome. kind. So it's like yeah. been really cool in that way. And I think that contrast is so interesting being at home mm -hmm. because I'll go in the fridge looking for something and be like, oh yeah, like that's not something that my parents would have just bought without thinking. Yeah, I can definitely, I feel like whenever I try to make a, a dish that isn't even slightly, even like a themed after my culture. I'm like, okay, well now I have to go to like find an Asian grocer and get 20 ingredients that I don't have. Um, it, it often seems like much more laborious than sometimes it feels worth, when, especially when you're hungry. So yeah. that is and I think a really interesting especially thing. Especially if you don't cook Asian food a lot of times, because then it's like, I've bought all the ingredients that are just going to sort of sit in my fridge or my pantry for a while and then maybe I'll use them again and then it's like why am I buying all these things as opposed right. to if you're constantly cooking Asian food then mm. it's like okay like that totally makes sense because I'm just going to use it all the time exactly I feel like you know and like you said I'm also raised by an Italian family at least on my dad's side very Italian he goes to an Italian mart every single week kind of Italian like he'll drive like 20-30 minutes just to go to like the one in deep Philly and little Italy um, and we have, I think, about 10 boxes of pasta in the pantry. And <laughs> anytime, I can't even imagine asking him to cook anything, 
you know, remotely Asian because it's more of like a themed night. Like when people do like Taco Tuesday, that's what it feels like when my parents would tr to try cooking anything kind of Asian, not inherently built in, just like a, a one-off kind of deal. So yeah. that is, I guess I never would have thought like the contrast between the two, but it, it's so obvious, but for you to experience both in your everyday life in a, in a different sense, that's dichotomically two different things. <laughs> And that's sure. like my hunt. I think that's very much my life experience with college versus being at home because, you know, at home, like, there's definitely fewer Asians in my area. And like, there are definitely a fair amount of Asian people at my high school and middle school. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my friends at home that I hang out with are still Asian. Um, mm -hmm. But at college, like, I was thinking about this recently, but like, most of my friends are Asian or Asian American. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, I'm friends with other people as well. But I think it's just interesting how that sort of conversion in college but definitely as a kid like I never thought that would happen and I think that was right. always something that was definitely a bit I think it was interesting in conversations with other people who had grown up with that background because for them there were so many things that were just so natural or so easy to talk about and for me like yeah. there are a lot of things that I had to learn how to talk about and get comfortable mentioning because you know bringing them up in the past didn't always yield the nicest results yeah definitely that is it's interesting how we see our friend groups develop over time especially like you said when you go up in a predominantly area and then it, it just it, it always i think highlights just how not to say that all like you said not to say that all experiences are you know the mm -hmm. same by any means but it just highlights just how such like the like your identity runs so deep at the same time too even if you have all these experiences it still is such a unifying thing not in the sense that everyone's the right. same like you said but just it, it gives you that inherent baseline to talk about and kind of build that relationship even deeper so interesting for sure and i think also just like hearing about this podcast and like just knowing that there were more adoptees out there like talking about um our experiences I think that for me was just very powerful in the sense of I hadn't, I don't think I'd had any sort of media representation where I felt like very accurately represented because mm -hmm. a huge problem I have with the way that adoption is talked about in media and on, on social media and the internet is that adoption is always the butt of someone's joke. It's always about right. some kid who's broken because they were adopted or, you know, they were a whole and healthy kid and they found out they were adopted mm -hmm. and suddenly they like start doing drugs or they get you know they suddenly develop mental illnesses out of nowhere which is not exactly how that works either um yeah but I think that like that kind of representation is just so frustrating because it was basically saying that you can't be you can't be a well-adjusted loved child if you're adopted which is absolutely right. untrue I mean obviously there's going to be things that are more inherent to the experience like abandonment issues are probably going to be a bigger um fear for a lot of people who are adopted but mm -hmm you know, that you can still be a well-adjusted person and, you know, your your family still very much loves you. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. at least I hope so. <laughs> but I think, like, at least yeah. in my experience, like, I definitely know that my family loves me and I think that that's a mm -hmm. very powerful thing um, in terms yeah. of a relationship with anyone. But I don't know. I think with media, like, that's that's why it's so frustrating. It's just, like, it this the, my experience is so poorly represented and often not represented. And so hearing that there were adoptees trying to tell adoptee stories for adoptees is really, really cool for me to hear. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad. Thank you. <laughs> that was definitely the, and that's, I think my favorite part about doing the podcast is like you said, every 
while we have this unifying, you know, there are threads that keep us together in a sense. There's also the, like this um, unthought about, for some reason, I experience that we all have different experiences. We all have different lives. We all have different relationships with our adoptive families or adoption as a sense in general. I mean, I think that a lot of non-adoptees would be surprised to find that there are a lot of adoptees that are also against adoption. You know, it's it's a very multifaceted, complex thing. And hearing everybody's unique story, I think, is probably my favorite part about being on the podcast. And I'm glad that it resonates with you as someone who, you know, listens to us and then has joined us on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. It's also a little terrifying to think that, like, people are going to be able to hear me talking. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also yeah. really cool. Every like, day I I'm, I'm very happy. It's just like it definitely is weird to think like, oh, people will be hearing what I sound like, and like they'll know about me, and I won't even know who they are listening. That's yeah. I I know. It's a little funny story uh, for the, everyone listening, and for you in particular. The first time we recorded our introduction, which is you know about a minute long, uh, it took us about to, I want to say at least an hour because we wrote out an entire strip. I think it took multiple days um, because we were so nervous thinking that, oh my gosh, we're going to speak and everyone's going to, it's immortalized forever. Uh, and I think every day I worry that I'm going to shove my foot in my mouth on the podcast, but I've <laughs> just kind of accepted that the listeners are going to be sitting there thinking, wow, Amy's really weird, but I hope, hope it's not too bad. So don't worry. You're totally fine. Everything you said, I think is really really powerful. Um, and I'm really excited for people to to get to to hear what we're talking about today. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think, you're, I, you're I, think, I think a lot about it. I think a lot about this stuff for sure, because, you know, it's my identity and like, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but also I think mm -hmm. I have a lot of unfleshed out thoughts. And so I think also that's what's so important about having these spaces for adoptees is it gives you a chance to you know, think through your experience, try and figure out how you feel about it, which, you know, obviously can change over time. Um, and it gives you that space to do so in a space where you know that other people, at least on some level, have a similar understanding or are willing to work through it with you and not, like, you know, you're not going to get judged for saying something. Because I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear that there are adoptees against adoption. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, how are you supposed to explore that feeling or that um, experience if, you are afraid of getting judged or having this extreme pushback from someone who isn't coming from that identity because also yeah. as like everyone hopefully as everyone has learned um because i mean i've personally seen this a lot on the internet but it is always inherently more exhausting for someone whose identity it is to talk about a hard experience than it is for someone coming from a different identity because it's not their experience it's not necessarily their emotional labor that's being done and so, right. you know, how are you supposed to explore a very vulnerable topic in a space where you are afraid of sharing? Right, exactly. And like you said, we, we have these unflushed ideas. I think a lot of things, you know, again, depending on where you are in your adoption, your identity journey, especially with adoption, they're just fragments of thoughts of, you know, for one second, you know, what if I wasn't adopted? Well, that doesn't mean to say that I don't love my life, but just what if I wasn't adopted? You know, all of those things you just you have them for a flash of a moment and you want to express those things and talk about it without fear that you're going to get you know a thousand different voices screaming how dare you even think that for a second exactly 
Is there anything else in particular that you wanted to talk about, about, you know, adoption, your identity, you know, your journey through, through everything so far? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a very, like, it is a journey. And I think for me, it's a journey with no end, because I always find new information or hear new experiences that I think definitely will change how I feel about adoption because, you know, growing up, everyone says like, you should be grateful for being adopted. You would have like died or like starved or something in China. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, A, we don't actually know that. And B, like, I am grateful that I have parents who love me very much and mm -hmm. very try and tried very hard to keep me connected to my culture. Mm -hmm. At the same time, like you have no business telling me what I should or shouldn't be grateful exactly. for. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a whole thing. But right. I think that, you know, my feelings about being adopted have shifted a lot because for me, I went back to China to ex to try and find my birth family and I actually found a foster family. Oh, wow. And then I did get my birth certificate, but it was sort of at the period right before going to college. And I was, I think mm -hmm. at that point I was like, you know, I have this foster family. I'm also about to go to college. I want to spend my time with mm -hmm. people that, you know, I'm friends with before our life changes forever. Right. And so I didn't really go looking for my birth parents after that, but I think connecting with my foster family was a very powerful thing, but also mm -hmm. very much shifted how I felt about being adopted because, you know, it changes the narrative from, oh, I don't know why I was given up, but, you know, you can kind of assume it was probably because of poverty or in the cases of other adoptees because of war. And so there's mm -hmm. usually more of a like ambiguity about it. But then mm -hmm. once you know that you were given up, um, very deliberately because essentially what happened was my mm -hmm. foster parents were trying to have a baby and my foster mother at the time wasn't able to conceive mm -hmm. um, and then they so they when they were migrant workers in Guangdong province they um, were asking around like you know if anyone hears about a child being left let us know because we really want to have a child mm -hmm. and then they heard about me in like the morning and they didn't know if I'd still be um, where they'd heard I was left uh, by the mm -hmm. end of the day when they were off work but they did end up finding me and I think an interesting sort of sidebar with that yeah. is when they found me they were saying like you they were like you were very sickly you were covered in flies it was very hot that day mm -hmm. we thought you were going to die and I was talking with my adopted dad who's a doctor and I was you know we were talking about that that whole story and he was like honestly probably part of why you had such a strong immune system as a kid was because you were exposed to so much like that day one and almost dying. And I was like, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> so that was an interesting thought. But yeah. anyway, so they ended up adopting me. And then they, the official at, in the area at the time had said like, oh, here's a piece of paper, basically me signing off that like, this is your kid, you've adopted them. Mm -hmm. But in China, you needed like a specific red slip of paper that was an official adoption certificate, oh. which they didn't get because the official basically said like, oh, it's fine, I'll just give you my signature. Mm -hmm. um, so then when they migrated back to Hunan province, which is where their family lives, mm -hmm. they, you know, the government, well, essentially what happens was they migrated back and they had, they took me with them. And then kind of out of nowhere, my foster mother suddenly became pregnant. And so the government gave her the ultimatum of either you, you know, you can keep this baby you've adopted, but you abort the other child, or you keep both kids, but you have to give up the baby that you adopted for adoption again. So it was definitely a big moment that was a big turning point, I think, in my very, at that point, very short life. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So that, and that was like my foster dad basically said for him, it was a matter of saving both lives because, you know, China is conservative when it comes to abortions, yes. among many other things. Yeah. Um, and 
So I think for them, that was definitely the act of, that would be like the act of killing a child. So he was like, you know, by giving you up to the orphanage, I was hoping that you would still have a good life. And also, you know, we wouldn't be killing this fetus. And it's a very interesting thing to work through to hear, like, you know, it's one thing to be given up for adoption because, you know, your birth family is very poor and Mm -hmm. you can't afford to raise you. It's another thing to, to hear that, like, the government gave your foster parents an ultimatum and they made a choice to give you up. And so I think that was, you know, that was a whole new layer of my adoption that I was working through at that point. Um, But I think it was important to me to find out. And it does make for a very interesting story and like background, I'll say that. My mind is kind of blown, honestly. Wow, I can't even imagine. And you found this out uh, a couple of years ago, you said? Yeah, so I think it was in ninth or 10th grade. And it was, it was like, I mean, that's a, you know, you're 14, 15, your brain is still developing, you know, you're still developing as a person. And like to find this out at a very, I think, critical point in my development was, it was very, it was very impactful. And I think it was also definitely a tough pill to swallow at the time. Mm -hmm. I think now it's like, you know, it, it ended up working out. And it was the kind of thing where my foster parents gave me up and then my foster dad did visit me in the orphanage a couple times and then he came like the third or fourth time he showed up and he was like they just told they were like you're this kid got adopted by american parents and they're not here anymore and he was like what's going on oh my gosh wild thing to find out um and (gasps) it was it was the kind of thing though that when we when we went back to the village and you know i connected with them and then i went to Changsha, which is where they live now Mm -hmm it was it was you like you could tell that he had like he he you know you could tell you could definitely tell that my foster father really did love me and like that was a very hard choice for him and i think with my foster mother like she definitely was less expressive but you could tell that they definitely cared and they were happy to see that i'd grown up in like a healthy environment yeah and it's very interesting because you know i think they really want to have more of a connection to me um than necessarily I think I do, which is not to say I don't want a connection, but I think for me, part of it is still figuring out what I want that connection to be versus yeah. for them. It's like, you know, they knew about this this child that they had to give up. And so they've nurtured this memory for, I guess I'm, I'm 21 now, like they've nurtured this memory for like 20 years. And yeah. versus like, I met them when I was 14 or 15 and I didn't know what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of don't. And like, I think it's really nice to have that connection to people but at the same time, like, it's hard because I met them once or twice in China and that's really about it. And like, now yeah. it's just texting each other for WeChat, which like, I don't even check that often. Right. Yeah. It's it's a lot to take in for anybody, even, you know, as a fully developed adult, like a real adult is what I call them. Um, I'm definitely not one, <laughs> let alone, you know, someone just going to high school, you know, and navigating high, sc- high school and college are some of the, the weirdest times to navigate as you you know, develop oh, yeah. and get all these ideas and just having something like that thrown into the mix, just not, not something to, to take lightly for sure. Yeah. And I, I will say, I do think I was very fortunate for being able to speak some level of Mandarin because I can communicate with them mm-hmm. versus like, I think, I think a fear I've definitely heard among adoptees is like, you know, if even if I meet my birth family, like, how do I talk to them? Like, I can't speak my I can't speak that language like I and I don't necessarily like I don't necessarily feel as connected to like the culture so Mm -hmm. how do I connect with them even if they are my birth family and it's you know I think 
my whole thing with that is I think that part of it is being is I think it's the difficulty of like if you want to learn any new language or any culture it's going to be hard yeah in this case I think it's much harder because you're doing like there's a much larger emotional element to it and also like I think people need to be kinder to themselves when it comes to that process because we are so often like oh I want to immediately be perfect at this I want to immediately understand everything and I think that's what makes learning a new language especially one that's like your cultural heritage I think that's what makes it so difficult because like the Asian languages are really hard they are very difficult and I think people like need to be like you should you you got to be kinder with yourself and you got to be patient with yourself because those trying to learn those is going to be very much a journey, not a sprint. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, especially if you're learning older, like the fact that you're even willing to try and learn is very commendable because that's very hard. I've had friends in college who started learning Mandarin in college and I'm blown away because like I started learning in middle school and it was hard, but at least my brain was like in a place where it was more able to absorb all that information. But to learn in college, like I can't imagine starting another language just sort of out of the blue in college, especially if you only spoke one language, because theoretically it's easier to learn another one if you already speak more than one. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still struggling. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think everyone just needs to be patient with themselves when it comes to those things, because Mm -hmm. it's, it's not as simple as just memorizing a bunch of words and then, and, you know, basically picking up the language. It's learning a bunch of words and having, an emotional experience of like, what does this mean? Like, how am I feeling about doing this? Yeah. Like, what is this? How is this impacting me? What does this mean potentially in the future? Mm-hmm. How does this change my relationships with you know people I meet in the future who can speak Mandarin? Does that change my experience within the Asian community? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of questions that get brought up, and I think that you know being kind to yourself and being patient is what's going to get you. I think it's going to continue motivating you to learn the language because you know you're never going to start perfect that's just unless you're some kind of prodigy which you know, <laughs> right, I'm yeah. not, like, you're, you're never going to start perfect you're always going to make mistakes I make mistakes all the time when I speak Mandarin and, and like you know some people are kind enough when they correct me and some people are not very kind about correcting me yeah um, <laughs> I think a huge part of learning a language is just getting over the fear of like making a mistake yeah you will make a mistake Mm -hmm. you will definitely make a mistake that's part of learning language also you learn from your mistakes hopefully Um, (laughs) that's the goal at least that's definitely you know yeah you want to learn from your mistakes that's that's how you learn um so I think that I think that that whole experience is I think that often when you're learning in like a formal setting or you're learning with people who don't have that same experience of being adopted it can be very difficult because you know they aren't necessarily expecting everything that's going to come with learning that as an adoptee when it's your cultural heritage. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. And I guess I never, again, you say it and it it sounds so obvious, but I never thought about, you know, all of the questions that you mentioned when, you know, learning a new language. I've definitely thought about, you know, what, how do I feel connecting with something part of my culture? But I think that was the biggest thing. But even if you're not consciously aware of it, those questions that you brought up, about you know everything else that comes with learning, um, especially an Asian language, especially as an adoptee, it's 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 there even if we don't consciously make the choice to think about those things. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think like that's why I love connecting with adoptees so much is because I have been very fortunate in that like I have had the chance to connect with my cultural heritage, learn Mandarin. Like I've had that chance. A lot of my friends at school are Asian. I've been I've definitely learned a lot more about other Asian cultures and 
you know, like a lot of last year, a lot of my friends that I spent time with were Korean. So I ate a lot of Korean food, which was wonderful. Um, <laughs> shout out to that house because they fed me a lot last year and it was great. And I miss their cooking immensely. Um, but like, you know, a lot of my friends at college being Asian and Asian American means that for me, there's a lot of questions that have come up just from being around people who don't have the experience of being an adoptee, but are also Asian or Asian American. And so I've had a lot of time to think through these kind of questions or these kind of feelings that come up. So that's why I love connecting with adoptees because not everyone else has had that experience or even been in an area where there's more than like five Asian people. Yeah. Um, and so like, it's just cool to connect with them because it's like, you know, I have, inf- I have like, I guess not information, but I have experiences that, you know, could benefit you if you want to engage more with your culture or Asian culture in general, or you want to learn language. Like, I've had that experience. And so I'm very happy to share that with people who are interested in hearing more or interested in also trying to learn about themselves or just Asian cultures in general. And like, I took intro to Asian American studies this term and I didn't realize how powerful it would be to sit in a classroom where the majority of people in the class looked like me or at least shared some form of cultural background Mm -hmm. and I remember the first day sitting there and like admittedly it was on zoom but even so like being taught by an Asian American professor Mm -hmm. and then also looking at the screen where almost all of my classmates were also Asian or Asian American was so powerful just to finally be in a room where I wasn't the minority wow yeah that's amazing I think because I remember the first moment that I was, you know, in a, you just in a crowd, not even like learning and engaging, knowing that this was going to be, you know, the future for the next couple of months. The first time I was in a crowd and I was no longer the the minority. And that was extremely impactful, let alone having, you know, an entire class set up where you're learning about, you know, what that means to you and what that means as a whole in society with the people that also reflect you. That's definitely something unique and special to remember for sure thank you again for joining us today spencer it's been amazing having you i love the conversation we've been having and i hope hope to have you on the podcast again sometime for a maybe a topical episode but for everyone listening if you're interested in participating in one of our episodes you can email us at somewhere.between.podcast at gmail.com and don't forget to join our instagram family at somewhere and stay connected with updates casting calls and a whole lot more see you guys next time <laughs>